This is Car Expert. If you're not familiar with the Cooper range, they're very, very strong, distinctive styling that I think will appeal to a lot of people. 3.3 seconds, 0 to 100, is the fastest SUV in the world by about three tenths. It's quick without pulling your skin back. It handles well without being really a riot to drive, and it rides comfortably without feeling like a magic carpet. Hello, my name is Mandy Turner. Hello, William Stopford. Hello, Mandy. And hello, James Wong. Hello to you both. You've been uh, busy, J.O. Well, you, you're going to be soon. We've got a, a new comparison coming up. Tell us more. Well, well, I'm actually always busy, Mandy, just in case any of my managers are listening. <laughs> but um, I, I, I sort of teed up a very interesting comparison that I'm working on at the moment um, between the, the Kia Stonic D- GT line and the Ford Puma. It was meant to be a base one, but it turned out that it was an ST line V. So two top spec cars, very different in price, but still sort of different versions of the same formula, both based on popular light car nameplates, even though we don't get the normal Fiesta here anymore, Um, both powered by turbocharged three-cylinder petrol engines, both with dual-clutch transmissions, both front-wheel drive, both sort of with a sporting pitch to it because they're they're more or less aimed at like young or young at heart that see themselves as, you know, active, athletic, youthful, all those kind of things. Um, They're both available in a range of bright colours, contrasting roof finishes. They both pack in a lot of features and tech despite being somewhat entry-level vehicles in their respective lineups um, with respect to the manufacturers, not necessarily within their own ranges because obviously they're both top-spec cars. But, um, yeah, so it's been really interesting sort of going through the the differences and the similarities between those two cars because they're both – they're both quite close competitors in Europe as well. They're, I would say that they're probably positioned as closer competitors in Europe than they are here given the price difference and the fact that the Kia for us is made in Korea, not in, um, I feel like it's the Slovakian plant for Kia or is that Hyundai? And then the other one's in the Czech Republic. I think it's the Czech Republic because my mum's sportage is from the Czech Republic. That'll be it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And um, so I, I'm still in the process of putting it all together and finishing off the driving and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I think it might be a really interesting one for people because I know that a lot of people are moving to SUVs these days. Not everyone wants like a bigger, like a RAV4-y style thing. So they start looking at, I want a smallish car, but I like an SUV. So, you know, what can I get? I'm very keen to read this comparison because I was in a, when I was in Melbourne just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a Stonic, but it was the exact opposite end of the model range. It was a base S manual in refrigerator white. Um, I actually enjoyed it. Um, That same engine with the auto, no. Um, But the GT line I've driven very briefly back in uh, Sydney last year and it seemed to be a good little rig, but the Puma it's one of my favorites in that class. I had an ST Line V up here late last year and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is actually a small SUV that I find fun to drive and that is not something that you can say about the majority of SUVs in that segment, to be <laughs> honest. So, it is a cracking little thing. It doesn't sell anywhere near as, as well as it probably should, um, but uh, very, very, very keen to read this comparison, James. Mm. What about, um, do we know how the Stonic is going? Have, have you seen many on the roads? Oh, they oh, sell very well. Yeah, yes. everywhere. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot. Yeah, they, they, okay. they tend to do like between 700 and 800 units a month, oh, which wow. is towards the top of the class. Yeah, they're, they're quite popular. 
Yeah, it's yeah. like second or third best-selling um, SUV in that light SUV segment from memory. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it, it does, James, doesn't it outsell the Rio as well that it's based on? Yeah. Um, yeah, which is is kind of a, boggles my mind because when you step inside a Rio and then step inside a Stonic, you'll notice that the interiors are almost identical. They use the same engines. Um, other than the completely different exterior styling, these things are, are for all intents and purposes, you know, twins. Um, but the Stonic has a little bit of a premium over the Rio um, on account of SUV styling and it seems to be uh, that's uh, enough to sway people away from the, the simpler uh, Rio hatchback. It's yeah. also better equipped in most grades than an equivalent Rio. So they do they do sort of pack in some extra stuff to draw people to it. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing off this review and hopefully um, a lot of people that are perhaps looking at a car in the segment will um, find this helpful. Over to you, Will. We have full pricing now for the 2022 Cupra range. Yeah, so Cooper has been um, rolling out uh, information about its model range and it just dropped pricing for the entire lineup uh, the other day. So uh, they have uh, priced the Leon hatchback the and the Formenta and Ateca SUVs for Australia. The Leon range will start at 43990 before on-roads for the Leon V, which is the base model. Uh, deliveries of that will begin next year. Uh, but the VZ that sits above it will start at 52590 or 56990 drive away. So they've released drive away pricing for the basically the rest of the, the Leon range. Um, so that for those who uh, might have forgotten um, what Cupra is going to be doing here, um, they're releasing the Leon, which is um, basically the Spanish brand's equivalent to the Volkswagen Golf. Um, that will be coming in a range of turbocharged four-cylinder engines plus a plug-in hybrid. Uh, the Formenta, likewise, uh, a small small to medium SUV, um, which will come in a range of turbocharged four-cylinder engines and a plug-in hybrid. And then the Ateca, um, which is an SUV that will just come in a single variant. Um, so basically the, the range ranges <laughs> from 43,990 before on-roads for the Leon V all the way up to 66,990 drive away for the Formenta VZE plug-in hybrid. Um, but uh, you'll notice uh, when you check out our Cooper pricing article, uh, the prices for the plug, the drive away prices, I should say, for the plug-in hybrid models do vary from state to state, uh, likely because of you know, different subsidies for plug-in hybrids and the like. Um, James, I'm really cu- curious, uh, as somebody who already drives a hot hatchback from the Volkswagen Group family, uh, what do you think about uh, all this Cooper pricing? Um, it's a it's an interesting one because the comments were quite mixed. And so when I went back through it and tried to link up all the Cooper versions with the equivalent Volkswagens and whatever, um, yeah, I noticed that the Cooper pri- uh, driveway pricing tended to line up with Volkswagens like base list pricing. So a using the Leon VZ um, as an example, that is basically a Golf GTI equivalent and at 55, 56 drive away, it's about the same price as a the Golf GTI's starting price before on-roads, which they think 54990 currently. So they're globally, if for those who aren't sort of aware of how the Volkswagen Group is structured, 
Cupra is the performance sub-brand or the standalone performance brand that's linked to Seat, which is the Spanish Volkswagen subsidiary, which sort of sits alongside Skoda as half a rung under Volkswagen. Now, that is very confusing to explain, but Seat and Cupra are like the sporting athletic brand, whereas Skoda's the more thinking person's practical brand, and then Volkswagen's half a rung up being that people's premium for the people thing that they they like to pitch globally in their messaging so all these cars here are based on existing volkswagen product just like the skoda stuff is so leon is a golf fomenter is something between a tiguan and a you know q3 sportback sort of thing uh you've got a Teca, which is basically a skoda Karok as well and sort of closely related to tiguan um and then soon they'll be bringing the born which is like an id3 so all of them the, the thing that actually really surprised me was the pricing of the plug-in hybrids i thought they might have been a little bit sharper but Obviously, they have the regional differences between subsidies and tax structures. But um, as I pointed out to a commenter in that, um, while the the price, the driveway price might be like, oh, that's a lot. Uh, the, the difference between the the 180 kilowatt versions of the Formenta and the Leon and then the 180 kilowatt plug-in hybrids is not as great as we've come to expect from other brands. And so when you think about how much a Golf GTI is, for example, like I really wanted to buy a Golf GTE in the previous generation, which basically runs the same powertrain. So 180 kilowatts, 400 newton meters is a lot for a little car like that. Mm-hmm. Plus you get like 55, 60 Ks of electric range. Um, so the the difference between a Golf GTI and the Leon VZE is actually not that much once you start factoring in the equipment differences and whatever so they've sort of positioned themselves in a way that they're sort of between all these different products and, and it offers something different and like if you if you look at the images on car expert if you're not familiar with the cooper range they're very very strong distinctive styling that i think will appeal to a lot of people and um uh, Croft told me today actually that he was at an event where they had the Formentor on display and you know he said the build quality is up to scratch it all looks really cool and it's all running Volkswagen stuff so if it, for someone like me who's familiar with a lot of Volkswagen product I could step into Cooper and be pretty much at home so it'd be cool to have just you know another choice we've been wanting say out products for ages because they they have a really they're well known in Europe for having a fun to drive factor and a more, more of a focus on driver engagement which is something that perhaps is lacking in Volkswagen and Skoda products as they sort of tend to um, gravitate towards refinement and comfort but um, yeah I'm really really keen to to have a steer and, and see how they go here because um, their, their sales model is a little bit interesting that they're doing like that agency fixed pricing model and stuff like that but I guess the market will determine their success. You're absolutely right about the plug-in hybrid pricing as well because we've seen a lot of plug-in hybrids be introduced in Australia commanding like a 10 to 15 grand premium over the equivalent petrol model. So this plug-in hybrid pricing relative to similarly powerful petrol models within the range isn't too bad. Uh, I'm very curious to see um, how the brand shakes out because they're still, you know, you've got to educate a whole population about what Cupra even is. The last mm. time the Cupra name was here was for about one year on a, on a say, at Ibiza that sold about, you know, two units. So there's going to be a real education campaign that Cooper will have to do here. Uh, they're predicting the Formentor uh, will be the bestseller. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense because, one, it's an SUV, and, two, it looks bloody nice, to be honest. Um, but the, the Ateca is, is a bit of an interesting one because it doesn't look as nice. It's a bit of a boxier, more traditional SUV silhouette. It's also the oldest model in the range. So it's uh, it was launched back in 2018, um, and that was actually two years – sorry, 2018 in Europe, I should say – and that was two years after the Seat it was based on. Um, so unlike the Formenta, which is its own kind of thing, unique body not shared with, with Seat, the, the Cooper Ateca and the Seat Ateca 
share a body. But obviously the Cupra has various sporty addenda. Um, and the interesting thing as well about the Ateca is you can actually get an, an Akropovich exhaust um, and a Brembo brake package on it. Um, now, from memory, you can't actually specify an Akropovich exhaust uh, from the factory on any other Cupra model. So we'll, we'll see how in it Australia goes. anyway. In, yeah, exactly in Australia. Mm. Uh, but I'll be very curious to see how sales of that model in particular go. Yeah. Okay. Now, moving on to the next story, <laughs> J-O, um, it, it seems like this diesel particulate filter issue is just not going away for Toyota Australia. Yes, I'm sort of revisiting my legal studies knowledge reading this one again. <laughs> so um, the, the Toyota diesel particulate filter case has been around for a while. And so there are some 200 and something thousand Prado, Fortuna and Hilux models with that 2.8 litre diesel that had um, what were described as faulty um, systems because they, as I quote, because it was not designed to function effectively during all reasonably expected conditions of normal operation and use of the vehicle. So basically people were using them and perhaps using more urban cycles you think of like Hilux owner or even a Prado owner they're going to be you know doing a lot of urban driving or you know doing the school run for example and and we know that you know diesels sort of prefer to be on longer drives to clear especially when they have these filters to burn out the particulates Um, but there was no way for the owner to manually operate it so that they wouldn't get clogged and and malfunction so the latest development is that um, the australian federal court has um, assessed the matter and these vehicles could be subject to payouts from toyota australia so um, the summary found that there was an agreed um, 17 percent reduction in each affected vehicle value which which averages about seven thousand dollars per car and um if toyota was to pay everyone out it, it could be quite a lot of money <laughs> yeah <laughs> long story short um <laughs> so that you can get the bulk of the using all the legal terms and going into all the details is probably not the best way to spend an audio conversation about <laughs> it because i feel like anyone that wants to really get into the the details of this probably needs to have everything in front of them but basically toyota is at risk of having to pay out quite a lot of money to affected owners and this is a saga that's been going on for ages now while i'm not super familiar with the Toyota case. I did work at Ford for a little bit. And when I was there, they were still dealing with the power shift um, debacle as well. So these court proceedings take a really, really long time. And so when you have this massive class action, like in this case, there's over 260,000 owners with with vehicles. Like that's a huge deal. Yeah. And, and, and to, you know, Toyota being a brand built on reliability and, you know, customer service and things like that, this obviously isn't the best look. But yeah, so... So that's a that's a lot of money, and um, they could be. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in their financial team right now, but um, yeah. Toyota, you know, has just got this this reputation for reliability that is so entrenched that when people who don't know that much about cars go, oh, I just want to buy something reliable, I'll just buy a Toyota. Like that's years and years and years of of positive equity and this this you know almost faultless reputation. So for this to come along and to it's not affecting like ruckuses and like you know chrs it's affecting some of the brand's biggest sellers um so we'll see if if this actually uh, makes a dent in in toyota's uh very 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 solid reputation for reliability but there's a lot of people out there who are 
not happy with what's happened with their uh, Prados and Fortunas and Hiluxes. Mm. Yeah, and just to follow on from that, Toyota did action this a couple of times throughout the course of um, the life cycle of these products because obviously all three cars are still on sale to in, in varying ways. Um, so they, they fitted or the company fitted a, a DPF burn-off button to the, the models with this engine in 2018 and then in 2020 substantially upgraded the engine with more power and obviously did other things to make it um, less prone to this condition. Um, the court found that the, the former patch was la- actually less effective than the latter update. So that manual DPF switch um, apparently didn't do much. And so I didn't quote the figure before, but according to um, reports about uh, the damages, if the, the total money awarded would be more than $2 billion <laughs> if Toyota is ordered to pay it. So oh. that is a lot of damn money. But at the same time, as you were saying before, Will, about you know their reputation, Hilux still remains the top-selling vehicle yeah. in the country. So people aren't swayed that much. And I guess now that um, if they walk into a showroom and can be assured that the vehicle that is on sale now does not suffer the issues that this many um, people have dealt with with their vehicles, at least um, – the, peop- the thousands of people that are buying Hiluxes and Prados and to a lesser extent Fortunas every month can at least um, have confidence that they're not necessarily going to be caught up in another class action like the people are doing currently. Mm. All right, we're going to move on to the next story. Will, Honda has pledged $53 billion, with a B, dollars for electrification. Yeah, so uh, what they've said is they're allocating around 5 trillion yen, so around $53.7 billion Australian, to electrification software technology over the next decade. And to put that into context, its overall R&D expenses for that period are uh, will be approximately 8 trillion yen, so $85.9 billion. So it's a big chunk of their upcoming investment that is going to go into electrification. Um, so basically they've, um, they did a little bit of a, a media briefing the other day where they outlined their plans. Some of them we actually already knew because they'd been announced already. Um, So, for example, uh, we already knew that Honda was going to be pairing up with General Motors uh, to roll out vehicles on General Motors' electric vehicle platform using Altium battery technology. Um, So, in 2024, it's planning on introducing the Honda Prologue and an as-yet-unnamed Acura SUV. Um, They'll be designed primarily for the North American market in mind, but, you know, who else... Who, who knows where else they might end up. Um, but Honda's detailed a little bit more of its of its other plans. So they, they are working on their own electric vehicle architecture uh, called the Honda E architecture, uh, which combines their latest hardware and software platforms. Um, so they announced it last year and they confirmed uh, with this briefing that from 2026, they'll begin adopting it um, and they'll roll out vehicles across that architecture. Um, they also confirmed that in the first half of 2024, they're planning on introducing a commercial use mini EV in Japan. So think like a little boxy little K Cute. van thing uh, and then a corresponding kind of passenger version of that um, will have a timely introduction subsequent to that um, and Honda's also planning on introducing an electric SUV in Japan they've actually already um, revealed concepts um, of electric SUVs uh, for the Chinese market and let's just remember here Honda might not be a, a brand the same scale as, as Toyota in Australia, for example. But in China, they are a big deal. They are one of the biggest brands there. Um, they also do a, a roaring trade in North America as well um, and a, perhaps a more modest trade in other markets like Europe. Uh, but 
Speaking of upcoming product, perhaps the most exciting thing that they actually announced um, during this briefing uh, was that they're planning on introducing two electrified sports cars. Yes, two sports cars. Um, And they released a a teaser kind of render thing of of these two sports cars under under sheets. Um, They haven't released any other information. Tease, um, <laughs> but they've said that uh, one will be a specialty model and one will be a flagship model. So you can probably extrapolate from that that one of them is going to be a successor to the NSX. Um, the other one, whatever the hell specialty means, because a sports coupe is already pretty specialty, but who knows? Maybe it's, it'll be a modern day prelude. Um, uh, but these sports cars will embody Honda's universal sports mindset and distinctive characteristics. So if you were expecting uh, details as to what, into, what exactly will power them when they're coming out. Sorry, you're going to have to wait there. And whether they're going to be coming here or not. Mm, mm, yes. Uh, probs yeah. not. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let, let's see. They've, they've actually said um, that these models will be globally available or globally introduced. Right. So they have indicated that they're not, at, at the very least, they're not going to be just like regional models like a, a you know, sports car designed just for the US market in mind. And look, to Honda's credit, they did bring the NSX here. They didn't sell many of them, but, you know, they brought it here. So so kudos to them for that. We'll have to see if they're, uh, you know, as, as generous to bring them here or rather, you know, if Honda Australia is actually able to get their hands on them if they're actually going to be developed in right-hand drive because, as we know, uh, Honda makes a lot of great cars that they just don't make in right-hand drive as well. So that's <laughs> that's very unfortunate. Um, but um, all in all, I think if, if we look at it this way, basically every brand is doing a big information dump about what their EV plans are because everyone wants to know, particularly investors, what are your EV plans? You've got countries that are saying that they're going to um, ban the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles at a certain date. You've got companies now subsequently announcing, hey, we're going to stop selling combustion engine vehicles uh, by a particular date. Honda hasn't put a 2030 deadline or anything like that, like the likes of Volvo has. Um, Obviously, um, they they still see themselves selling a lot of combustion engine vehicles and hybrid vehicles in markets like Japan for some years to come. Um, And Honda also hasn't done what what Toyota did. I think we were all kind of a little bit taken for surprise uh, last year when Toyota said, hey, these are our EV plans and then showcased 16 or so concept (laughs) vehicles. That was a lovely surprise. Uh, Nissan... uh, not to quite the same scale, but they teased a, a bunch of future products um, as well. Um, a little bit fanciful concept cars, but still it was a lot of pretty pictures to, to showcase. Honda hasn't really done that. They, they put out a slide deck and, and one teaser of these, of these sports coupes. But look, this gives us a better idea of, of what they're working on. Um, and they have said that they are continuing to look at uh, technology like swappable batteries and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So Honda's one of the few brands that has actually invested in hydrogen. They have actually just ended production of their only hydrogen powered vehicle, but that leaves the door open for more hydrogen uh, powered Hondas to come. So if you want to see um, the full kind of overview of what Honda has planned, check out the article on the website. Absolutely. And that brings us to our last story to your home state, in fact, Will. Uh, yeah. We actually covered a similar story. It was more a Dobbin O'Hoon uh, story in Queensland. But um, uh, your state is going to be increasing fines for driving offences by how much? Oh, 
Well, <laughs> this is uh, this will make you even more paranoid if you're on the road, fellow Queenslanders. <laughs> um, what uh, they they've basically increased fines for not only speeding uh, but also driving without a seatbelt. Now, obviously, no excuse for that. What are you doing driving without a seatbelt anyway? Uh, but I just wanted to zero in first on um, one other little change that they made to to speeding fines. So previously. Uh, so these new fines come into effect from 1 July. Currently, um, if you speed uh, between uh, it between 1 and 12 kilometers an hour over the limit, um, you're looking at a, a $183 fine and a single demerit point. Queensland, the Queensland government has not only increased that to a $287 fine, but they have actually also changed the little cutoff. So it's if you're speeding between 1 and 10 kilometres an hour. So just a, a little detail, um, but um, that could potentially catch out some more people. So other speeding fines have gone up, like, for example, 21 to 30 kilometres an hour over the speed limit, that's gone from 459 to 646. So all the fines have increased, uh, but the demerit points have actually largely stayed the same. Uh, but perhaps the headline increase um, is uh, the fine for uh, not wearing a seatbelt. So um, those of you in Queensland might be aware that um, the Queensland government has been in the process of rolling out these mobile phone and speed, sorry, speed belt, seat belt detection cameras. <laughs> oh, I accidentally sent an email to somebody the other day saying, oh, what's the fine for, for exceeding the seat belt or something like that? Because I was talking about the back and forth and they didn't notice or they didn't thought I was an idiot. So... <laughs> That was being um, nice. Very polite to not uh, call me out on that. Um, but anyway, um, didn't realize until later. Uh, basically, uh, pre- uh, you currently have a fine of $413 and three demerit points if you're caught, uh, whether by a police officer or by a camera, uh, for driving without a seatbelt. That's now been increased to $1,078 and four demerit points. Um, but honestly, I, I can't imagine why you'd ever be driving without a seatbelt. It sort of um, becomes like a, a, a natural reaction. As soon as you get in the car, you put the seatbelt on. You don't even think about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's we've got years of kind of uh, education campaigns behind that yeah. to the point where it's, yeah, you're right, it's absolutely second nature. I mean, back in probably the 60s and 70s, it, it might have been like pulling teeth trying to convince people. But I think the biggest kind of takeaway from this is the number of people that ha- were caught um, driving without a seatbelt because most cars today have an audible seatbelt warning True. that just starts chiming right away and annoys the crap out of you when you're just like trying to like reverse into another spot or something <laughs> like that. You just end up putting your seatbelt on just to yeah. shut it up. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically uh, between November 1 and December 31, 2021, uh, Queensland government issued 20,500 infringement notices uh, based on these detection cameras. So 14,800 of those uh, uh, infringement notices were for mobile phone use. But that still leaves like what, almost 6,000 people who were caught by these cameras driving without a seatbelt. I just cannot imagine why you would ever drive without a seatbelt. Insane. Yeah. Insane. Unreal. It, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. More news can be found at carexpert.com.au. Hello, Tony Crawford. Hey, Mandy. How are you? Really good, thank you. We've just come off the back of talking about automotive umbrellas. Yes. And, uh, 
Yes. <laughs> no doubt Aston Martin give away good umbrellas as well. Yes, the Formula One team prized possession when we can only dream of being part of the Formula One team. So the umbrella Absolutely. is the next best thing. Well, speaking of uh, performance cars, I know this one is not one to go around the track with the F1s, but you have just completed a review of the 2022 Aston Martin DBX 707. Of course, JWO was on the podcast a few weeks back talking about the DBX, but what is the difference between this one and the one that JWO reviewed? Oh, wow. There's almost no comparison, Mandy. <laughs> and, uh, and yes, it does go around the F1 track, Mandy. It is the safety car thing. It's a medical car. Oh, is it really? Uh, the 707, yes. Wow. <laughs> it's, um, because it's the only one that can keep up. Um, uh, well, so it's basically a performance model, is it? Yeah, this is the – so we're DBX – um, there was a little bit of criticism, I think, um, globally with DBX. It was only a naught to a hundred in a four point five or four point six, four point five, I think, seconds. Which you know, compared to the Eurus is three point six, and Bentley Bentayga speed is uh, well under four seconds. Um, it was a little bit slow. And um, wow. and to be honest, um, I did an original drive uh, well before JWO. Um, and I found the ride not quite compliant enough. I found it a little bit sharp and, you know, uh, although it had a fantastic chassis and that's what they built on their chassis, but they've basically gone to every single area of the car, whether it be engine, whether it be steering, whether it be gearbox, whether it would be um, anything, um, uh, balance and all that stuff, and they've actually rejigged everything. So this is a very, very different car. And you, have, had you not, and as I said in my review, and I hate to be the one to say this, but this probably should have been the DBX that you know from its outset. Uh, and I know you know that's very easy to say in hindsight, but this is a, a vastly superior car and so much fun to drive. Uh, you know, I, I called it the benchmark in my review, the new benchmark. Uh, it, it doesn't comp- it doesn't have a lot of rivals. It has the um, uh, the Lamborghini Urus, um, the uh, Porsche Cayenne GT Turbo, um, and the Bentley Bottega Speed. Did I say that Urus and mm-hmm. the Porsche? So not a lot of rivals, really. I, I suppose if you wanted to be um, crass, you might say the um, Audi RS Q8, but that's a, a vastly cheaper vehicle, virtually half the price. Um, so, uh, just to give you uh, some context in that pricing, it's four hundred and twenty-eight thousand four hundred, I think. Um, the Eurus is three ninety-one plus on roads, and the Bentley Bentayga is dearer by about a hundred grand at five hundred and fourteen thousand. So that gives you a and I, the Porsche. I'm not quite sure of. Um, yeah. uh, it's it- it's way cheaper than the um, than the Aston. Did it did it feel like an SUV when you were driving it, Croft? Not really. No, um, apart from the ride height, uh, but, but even that's lowered. It, the DBX is quite a low vehicle, the whole platform anyway. Uh, so they didn't have to do much there, but they strengthened everything. So, no, it doesn't feel like a, you know, 3.3 seconds not to 100 is the fastest SUV in the world by about three-tenths. Um, the, the Porsche KN GT does the same not to 100, but it can't match the, the Aston in a naught to 160 run, uh, which uh, happens in 7.4 seconds for the Aston. 
so this is an extremely quick car. But more than that, that's just bragging rights, right? That's not really important when you buy an SUV for that sort of money. You want ride comfort in a luxury SUV, and this delivers that. While at the same time, um, uh, the test drive route was in uh, the off the island of uh, in the island of Italy um, called Sardinia. And uh, it has very, very uncrowded, twisty roads. And I, and I do mean twisties that go on forever. Um, for an hour and a half, in fact, you're doing <laughs> 100 plus k's an hour through these twisties uh, in this vehicle. And it doesn't feel like it ever loses grip. And it was a little bit wet in parts. And um, driving with a guy, Dave Mahoney, who's written a couple of reviews for Car Expert. And um, we were, I got sick in, as a passenger on the way home uh, because of the relentless twisties and the way this vehicle um, conquers those twisties without a single millimeter, seemingly of body roll. So this is what I mean. It, it, it drives like a sports car. It rides like a luxury um, SUV, um, but it has a wonderful breadth of ability um, through the, the various drive modes um, that it has. Okay. Does, and, it have the, uh, yeah. does it have the practicality of an SUV? Yes. Yes, it's uh, very, very spacious. Um, it's not the biggest of SUVs, it's only just over five metres long, um, but it is, it is acceptably comfortable uh, in the back seat and um, the boot space, I think, is just over 500 litres. Um, yes, nice. JWO. Um, so obviously you and I have both driven the standard DBX and our, uh, I think our sort of um, assessment of it was pretty similar in that it provides a very solid foundation, you know, it handles well, yeah. it, it's fast enough and it's, it feels like an Aston in the way that it's designed and built. Mm. How different does this 707 version feel? Is it just, you know, a performance boost and, you know, lowered suspension or does it actually feel like a fundamentally different car? fundamentally different um down even to the steering they've changed some bushings and um some some uh they've strengthened the steering so it's a lot sharper um but at the same time it doesn't feel too sharp or too light uh, as is a ferrari for instance a ferrari road car um which uh, you know for those not uh, familiar with ferrari they tend to feel very light to to the uninitiated, uh, whereas this vehicle felt just perfect. I, I I just can't, I just couldn't think of anywhere this vehicle could be improved. As I said in my review, it's uh, the the story is that it's like James Bond was given the keys to this thing, and he had to go away for 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 a proper field uh, test, and he's come back a year later with a a bunch of mandatory. Uh, requisite uh, improvements, uh, including a shed load more grunt, uh, better handling, um, better steering, better ride comfort. Um, I, you know, there's just it, it was just perfect. And I have driven the Bentley Bentayga Speed, albeit on track. Uh, I have not driven the Porsche Cayenne GT Turbo. Um, with and for all um, for all accounts, it's an extremely good vehicle. But you know, it's not an Aston Martin; it's a Porsche. And I think Bentley and Porsche and, you know, potentially Rolls-Royce are a cut above the rest. But I think as, you know, complete the complete package where you get this amazing status, you get this James Bond, um, you know, inherent uh, 
you know, cachet built into the vehicle. You get amazing uh, straight line performance. And at that straight line performance, by the way, we took it up to about 258 kilometres an hour and it felt rock solid going into a bend, um, uh, which, yeah, amazing. And then through these corners, um, Mahoney uh, was in my passenger at the time and we were squirting it. I didn't think we were going that quick out of corners, but he just couldn't believe the way it was rotating. And as a passenger, sometimes you see more than you do behind the wheel in that respect. So, yeah, I, I, I like the look of it. I've, I've noticed some comments on the review where uh, people said it was um, quite ugly. I, I, I reject that. And, and I know it's uh, very subjective, the whole design thing but i'd love to hear what you guys uh, think of the look of this vehicle given it's got a way more uh, cooling it's got venting it's got a lot more uh, aero to uh, stabilize the vehicle at those high speeds um what do you think of what, what do you think of the look of this vehicle compared to other uh, you know luxury suvs jwo you're an aston fan keen to hear your thoughts oh exposing me already um <laughs> well I, i'll sort of go with when I saw the the standard DBX revealed for the first time, I was a little bit like, especially the back of it. I think the front looks very Aston and, and, and quite cohesive. And then you sort of get to the back and it's sort of like with the old Rapide where they have like a DB front and then a Vantage back. Um, and they've sort of done that here again too because the back is very heavily inspired by the Vantage um, Coupe. But when I saw it in person for the first time, especially the one that I drove in that lovely, you know, icy blue metallic, icy silver metallic mm-hmm. with like a blue and a gold tinge to it, is there, there's, some, just, there's just this present about, presence about it that's just really breathtaking. And I think there's, there's something about it that is really, really cool. It's not like classically attractive like other Astons. Like you look at a, a DB11 or even like, like the previous generation of product, Vanquish, DB9, even the old Vantage, they're all beautiful, beautiful cars and pretty much timeless designs. I think this this um, DBX is maybe not quite like that, but it's definitely like striking and attractive in its own way. It's I, I don't necessarily find it ugly, but I think a lot of people will only be looking at pictures and in pictures it can sort of look oddly proportioned or the light mm. hits it funny or d- depending on what color you, you have it in can really um, change how it looks. So I think it's more about like seeing one in the metal. There's just something about it. It's very, very grand. Mm. It looks great to me, but I think, you know, one of the common complaints you always hear from people is, oh, it looks like a Ford. And it's like, well, that's hardly Aston Martin's fault <laughs> if Ford chose to start ripping off Aston Martin oh, grills yeah, about 10 that. years ago. Yeah, I saw those comments. Um, by the way, um, guys, the, the, the design or the, the profile of the rear um, is not so much – I know it's similar to – I know it's very a takeoff from the Vantage, but that actually comes from the fact that if you look at the line across the top of the grill, that is the same uh, profile that you get with the rear line. So uh, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create this Aston look um, and this very uh, unique uh, uh, profile um, or, or character line across that matches the – the um the top of the grill so in that respect you know they're they're adhering to their their design formula um i agree with jaywo though i i tend to think this vehicle looks a lot better in the metal than it does in pictures and and jaywo is dead right it can look uh, a little bit odd um at some angles um but when you get next to it particularly this one with so much more aero and um aggressive uh features on it 
it does look very, very special. And um, look, I like the Bentley too. I think the Bentley at the rear looked fantastic. By the way, the Bentayga, and uh, you know, if you want to go all the wave, if you want to go to the uh, the full strength, the brand new Range Rover SV, uh, which is out too, that is a that's probably one of the best looking, most beautiful uh, SUVs in the world. But it's not an Aston Martin, and certainly doesn't go like one. So I think <laughs> if if someone is wanting that exclusivity, and don't forget, these things are extremely exclusive. The interior. Um, even though it uh, suffers from slightly older um, infotainment tech, um, the materials and the way that it's constructed. Uh, I've got a video on the um, that's gone into the review. If anyone wants to uh, have a look at it, you certainly wouldn't look at all of it. It's about 18 minutes. But I do go into the detail of even where you uh, pop the vanity mirror, there is some beautiful metalwork around this uh, Alcantara style. It, it really is, as I said in the review, I said it looks like, it feels like you're in a Dunhill shop in London. And, and this is the degree they go to in this vehicle. So it's not just a fast, great handling SUV. It, uh, it is superior uh, to many of its competition, to much of its competition. Uh, certainly the Porsche, uh, Bentley makes some great interiors. But don't forget, Bentley and Urus are on the same platform. So it's not a bespoke platform like the Aston Martin DBX is. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's one thing to consider. It's been built to handle the stresses. And don't forget, we've got 900 newton metres. Um, under here, and it is enormously quick. In fact, when we were uh, 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 giving it the beans from zero, we thought, gee, it, is it that quick? It Does it feel 3.3? And we kind of said, gee, maybe not. The reason is, is because first and second is torque limited because of the, that much power with spin wheels. So when you hit third, and when we hit third, we we uh, gave, it really, really scooted, and we both looked at each other and said, "Shit, this is bloody fast!" Yeah. And um, it just winds up without it, seemingly an endless level of torque as you would get. Now, the good news is for those looking for something more is uh, there is the the real potential for a hybrid uh, for hybrid. Uh, uh, you know, extra power through a hybrid uh, system in this vehicle, and it uh, don't be surprised if one comes out uh, with a thousand newton meters plus, um, because that was the general feeling I got uh, from talking to the uh, the engineer, the the lead engineer on this vehicle. And just on that note, BMW's revealed that Concept XM, which has got a plug-in hybrid V8 powertrain, that's got 550 kilowatts and 1,000 newton meters. So, could be right, Croft. That's it. Here we go. All right. Uh, Now, you've given it a car expert rating of 8.9, and that review is live now. Thank you, Tony Crawford. Thanks, guys. Uh, An absolute pleasure to talk about interesting cars. And for our second review this week, Will, you've been behind the wheel of the Audi e-tron S. Now, for those who don't know what this model is, can you tell us what it is? So think of it as a sportier version of the existing e-tron electric SUV. Um, So this is actually the first S-branded electric model from Audi. 
They're also planning on, uh, they're also announced that they're introducing their first RS branded electric Audi in Australia later this nice. year with the RS e-tron GT. Um, so what you get with the, with the e-tron S over a, say an e-tron 55 is a third electric motor. So it's a tri-motor electric all-wheel drive powertrain um, with 320 kilowatts of power and 808 newton meters of torque. Um, but with boost mode, those actually get bumped up to 370 kilowatts and 973 newton meters. So you're looking Looking at a pretty large electric SUV that can do the zero to 100 dash in as little as 4.5 seconds. Um, and as an S model, it's of course got the requisite little cosmetic tweaks. So you've got these kind of flared wheel arches, you've got these bright orange brake calipers. It's it's honestly a pretty damn good looking luxury SUV. Mm. For sure. Um, we all know that uh, Audi do pretty nice interiors what's it like stepping inside so very very familiar if you have been in a q7 or a qa so basically audi with e-tron has been careful not to rock the boat so even though the e-tron um it's derived from a combustion engine platform uh instead of doing what say bmw has done with the ix3 uh, audi hasn't just simply taken like a q7 or a q8 and just kind of put some blue <laughs> trim on it and then and, and tweak the styling a little bit it, it's it's a different it's an entirely different vehicle um when you're actually looking at it in person different sheet metal um but when you look inside the car it is very familiar to people who have driven a q7 or a q8 so i've said this before when i reviewed an e-tron 55 it's it's like audi um wants to appeal to existing audi buyers um uh, people who are very curious about going electric um but you know, find that a little bit confronting. So if you step into an e-tron, it all feels very comfortably familiar. Um, so look, Audi does interior as well. It's a very nicely laid out interior, excellent infotainment system, uh, one of the best digital instrument clusters probably in the segment, um, at the little second screen for climate controls. Everything looks and, and feels and, and, and works generally quite well. Um, a couple of features I would think would be on uh, an SUV of this price that aren't there. Um, you cannot get ventilated seats at all, for example. There's no massaging seats either. So, I mean, just, just a little thing, but I figure if you're spending that much, that should at least be an option. Um, but all in all, inside and out, it's, it's very, you know, it's very Audi. Um, mm. And when you're driving it, there aren't really any surprises either. So, you might think, oh, tri-motor. Uh, electric powertrains is going to feel like a rocket ship, isn't it? Um, like a, like a Tesla Model X played or something. Not quite. It's it's all very 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 smooth. Um, it, I think I, I summarized it thusly in the review. It, it's quick without pulling your skin back. It handles well without being really a riot to drive, and it rides comfortably without feeling like a magic carpet. Like all in all, this is just a very nice, cohesive, sensible. Tri-motor electric, $160,000 plus electric SUV to drive. <laughs> um, so it, it's, you know, it doesn't have the uh, design flair of, say, a BMW iX inside, but it also doesn't look hideous outside, so that's a bonus. <laughs> so we're seeing this this electric SUV market is, is absolutely growing. There are more and more entrants every year. Um, the e-tron S is just a little bit different um, in that it's it's got this sporty look to it that um, you don't really get in anything else. Like even a Tesla Model X, which could absolutely cream this at a drag strip. Like no, let's, let's not mince words there. A Tesla Model X is definitely quicker. 
but it certainly doesn't look this sporty. Um, <laughs> it doesn't look like, um, you know, this kind of RSQ8-esque um, sports luxury SUV. Um, it, it, the e-tron S looks really, really good. And the price premium it has over the e-tron 55 isn't massive. I wouldn't say the e-tron 55 is the bargain of the century uh, on its own. Um, but for a little bit of extra money, um, the e-tron S kind of makes a little bit of, of sense if you are after a, a luxury electric SUV. How does the price compare to its, its rivals? Yes, yeah, so that is a really good question. So we often talk about EVs having a considerable premium over comparable petrol models. Interestingly, the e-tron S uh, is actually priced quite similarly to uh, an Audi SQ8, which is a similar size, similar-ish performance. It'll be delivered in a very different way because it's, you know, <laughs> a petrol engine. Um, but the e-tron S is priced at 168400 before on-roads as a wagon, or 175400 before on-roads as a sportback. Uh, an SQ8, for context, is 169600 Um I'd love to tell you how much Tesla Model X costs, but Tesla has removed pricing and delivery information for that model in Australia, so it just seems to be on hold for a little bit. Um, I'd love to tell you how much the upcoming BMW iX M60 costs, which is another electric luxury SUV that's got a, perhaps a more sporting bent, um, but that hasn't been priced yet. Um, the current top spec BMW iX is 169600 So all in all, if you put it in the context of similarly powerful or similarly specified um, SUVs, the pricing stacks up decently. Uh, well, with all this extra performance, though, how does that impact the range? Because the e-tron S has the same battery pack as the 55, correct? Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's got that 95 kilowatt hour lithium-ion battery from the 55. Um, Audi quoted claimed range of 413 kilometers in the wagon or 418 kilometers in the sportback. But those are on the NEDC cycle. Uh, so digging, uh, digging in the, the WLTP figures for those are 344 and 372. So not um, the, the longest range uh, vehicle in the segment. Again, if you want to look at the BMW iX, um, as an M60, that actually has a claimed WLTP range of 566. Um, and even the, uh, the current X-Drive 50, 630 kilometers of range. So Audi doesn't really stack up terribly well when you compare it against those BMWs, uh, let alone something like a Tesla Model X. Okay. Well, you can search for Audi e-tron at carexpert.com.au. That review will be there very soon. That's an end for this week's podcast. Uh, will, you've been driving around in the Polestar 2 recently. How's the reaction been from the public? Yeah, well, I went to the gym last night and a swarm of people came over to look at it. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, there were people that were just congregating in the parking lot anyway, but they just instantly saw the car and just kind of looked over and I had one person go, oh, what's that? And another person just nodded knowingly, it's a Polestar. I've been looking at them. Um, and then another person's like, what's a Polestar? So, it was a whole big discussion. I had them looking in and out of the car and and then another guy was leaving the gym and he came along and it was, it was just, I, I've... I can't remember the last time I was in a press car that kind of stopped traffic in that respect. Oh. And and to be fair, this this is a it's the it's the top, basically the top spec Polestar two with I believe all of the option packages. So it it certainly does seem to get your attention. But it it does show that you know the the kind of the difficulties with a new brand you've, you've got to educate people. And we were talking about this before with Cupra. Mm. Um, 
you have to tell people what the hell a pole star is. Um, but um, evidently, you know, at least some people uh, know already what it is. Uh, so I'll have to see when I go to the gym tonight if I can <laughs> swarm people. Polestar to the car of the gym people. Yeah. I have to say, yeah. though, like the gym crowd is an interesting crowd. Like I've made more friends at my F45 gym because people ask me questions about what I'm driving as opposed to like actually working out with somebody throughout the course of the <laughs> session. Like I have had a couple of electric cars which spark people's attention because there's a lot of um, – you know, middle-aged people that are like thinking about it or even younger ones that are like, oh, I'm going to go electric. Like, what should I get? And once they find out what I do for work, they start asking me a lot of questions. But even other stuff, like I had that 300 series Land Cruiser and I had like three people stop me going like, who's got the new Land Cruiser at the front? And I'm like, oh my God, it's seven in the morning. I am barely awake. Please do not bombard me with questions at this time. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how, you know, some, I think sometimes we forget because we're so across um, the industry and have our pulse uh, finger on the pulse of everything, but like the the novelty for for regular people is is very alive. And when they see some think cars like this, because like a Polestar two, where are you going to see one really? Yeah, exactly. I don't think I've seen one on the road yet. And you know something like a Land Cruiser three hundred, they're in such limited supply. People have probably ordered one and been quoted a two year wait time, <laughs> and they haven't seen one in person yet. So like, yeah, it's always f- funny hearing stories like that. Um, Will because yeah, like I go through the same thing and it's it's always fun having conversations with people that like genuinely go like oh my god you have the coolest job oh my god you have the coolest car today like what tell me more tell me more tell me more <laughs> we have our finger on the pole star oh boom tiff ill david <laughs> <laughs> will's work here is done actually not quite yet um what cars have we got coming up so i uh, i'm swapping the pole star for a honda crv um next week uh is the top of the line CRV. So there we go. You just um, see what the gym people say about that. Yeah, I don't think the gym. Does people- that have magic seats? <laughs> <laughs> I think my mum has one of those. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's a decent car. Um, but uh, some interesting metal down in Melbourne because you guys actually seem to have a Polestar two as well, um, along yes. with a Kia EV six, which I, I'm pretty sure is another vehicle that would stop traffic in the in the gym parking yeah. lot. Um, also, a Hyundai Staria, which uh, certainly does get people's attention. I wonder how long that will last as more and more get o- get on the roads. Um, but I know when I showed my, my nephew that car, he was absolutely obsessed with it. <laughs> I thought it was one of the coolest cars. I show him all manner of luxury cars, electric vehicles, and the Staria was one of the favorite vehicles he's Aww. seen. So, go figure. Bless. Uh, yes. Um, also, an Audi A3 and a Volvo S60 uh, in the Melbourne office. And in Sydney, we have a Toyota CHR. All right, and you're off to an event next week, Jabo. What else is on? Yes, in a complete change of events, I'm actually going somewhere. Um, so <laughs> there's one event next week in Sydney, which is the um, Toyota GR86 prototype launch, which I'm very excited to do because I recently stepped out of a um, Subaru BRZ, which was my first trial of the um, the new generation of both of those cars. So I'm really keen to um, – it's only a prototype drive, and I think we're um, driving them at Sydney Motorsport Park, so a bit more of a track component, which will be – I'll be able to explore the full potential of the new 
new 86, but I'm, I'm really interested to see if I will be able to see and feel tangible differences between the two models because obviously they're very, very similar cars and always have been. But given that Toyota is now putting that GR branding on the 86, I'm wondering if it's going to be a bit more focused because I found the um, Subaru to be quite agreeable for day-to-day use. It's quite comfortable. It's very easy to park and live with and all that kind of stuff. So whether Toyota is going for more of a you know enthusiast track-focused crowd with this new 86, uh, I guess I'll find out next week. Cool. And any other events happening or is that it? Not that I can see other than a litany of public holidays across the country. (laughs) (laughs) They all come at once. They really do. But uh, our podcast continues on, so we will be back next week. Thank you, William Stopford and James Orr. Thanks, team.